Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Dave Mozerski to the show. Dave Mozerski is the president and co-founder of Energy Peace Partners. Dave has been involved in peacebuilding and conflict prevention work since 2001 with a specific interest in mediation and peace processes. He is the founding director of the Program on Conflict, Climate Change, and Green Development at UC Berkeley's RAIL. And he has worked with the International Crisis Group, the African Union, and Humanity United, among others. Dave, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Raj. How are you? Dave, I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for asking. Dave, where are you currently located? I'm currently in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. So there's lots of smoke in the air around here because the fires are uh, are still active. And you and your family are safe? We are all safe, yes. It's pretty bad out there, isn't it? Uh, it is. I mean, it seems like the tide has turned and, and they have the fires trending in the right direction. Um, and it's not even fire season yet. Fire season is supposed to be... It's start next month, but uh, yeah, it has not been a good week plus in the Bay Area. Well, I hope you guys continue to stay safe. Thank you. So Dave, I'd like to open my show by asking my guest the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? Um, I, I There's an anecdote from shortly after I moved to Kenya in 2001 I, uh, I actually joined and participated in the, the Kenya National Chess Championships, which I born and raised in, Can- in Canada. I'm not a Kenyan, but uh, I saw a notification for it and I was able to participate even though I wasn't a Kenyan national. And uh, I, I joined and initially the Kenyan participants saw my name and were worried that, that I was a ringer from Russia because uh, of the last name Zersky. <laughs> And uh, so there was a lot of interest in my first game. And then I immediately proceeded to lose my first game and everyone relaxed. And they realized that I was very little threat to the serious players. But it was a fun experience. So if I recall the Swahili word for the white man is the Mzungu, correct? Yeah, there was some grumbling about the Mzungu who had uh, <laughs> joined the chess championships. <laughs> but fortunately, note, I, I'm not very good, so it put them all at, at, uh, at ease <laughs> pretty quickly. Or as they say in Swahili, right? Apana wasi wasi. No worries. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Very nice. So on that note, have you watched uh, Queen of Katwe? I have. Yeah. It's a great, my great girls, story. Yeah. It is. My girls have watched it a few times and they, they, they just love it. So interesting story about the little girl from Uganda playing chess. Yeah. I'm going to switch gears here. Can you give an overview of Energy Peace Partners? Sure. So uh, Energy Peace Partners works on the idea of promoting renewable energy as a tool for peace in uh, what, what we term fragile states, but these are countries 
that are at risk of conflict or affected by conflict, vulnerable to climate change, and with low levels of electrification and energy access. And that may seem like uh, sort of three random indicators, but what we found is that there's very strong overlap between those three. So the least electrified countries in the world also tend to be those at greatest risk of conflict, also tend to be those most vulnerable to climate change. And so climate change impacts. And so as an organization, we've brought together a team of people with backgrounds and expertise in conflict resolution, renewable energy development and finance, and climate security. And uh, we work on two tracks. One is a research track that looks at the role of energy in conflict settings, um, specifically focusing on United Nations and humanitarian, international humanitarian missions, uh, which as of today in 2020 are still primarily diesel dependent. So they still operate uh, generally off of, of generators and off-grid settings. And we, we see those as a way to help introduce renewable energy into these settings. So we're working with some of those organizations and agencies to help transition their own practices to renewable energy. And the second track is a new financing mechanism we've developed called the Peace Renewable Energy Credit, which is a mechanism to help support new renewable energy projects in, in the countries we're working in, um, which generally lack the economic incentives and finance flows that have supported renewable energy projects elsewhere. So could you expand on the role of energy in conflict? Sure. So um, it, it's different in different, in, in different contexts, obviously. But um, what we found is that the, I mean, you, you have a, a number of development indicators uh, that are, are generally going to be lower in, in most conflict countries. So I'm sure if you looked at, at maternal health or, um, uh, or other economic indicators or health indicators, you would also find worse rates in conflict-affected countries. The reason that we focused on energy specifically and electrification is because there's so much momentum around renewable energy um, elsewhere in the world. So renewable energy represents the majority of all global climate finance and has undergone really a revolution over the last decade uh, around the world. There's hundreds of billions of dollars invested in, in renewable energy, but very little of that money is reaching uh, the countries that we've that we've identified, of which there are 27 countries that fit this sort of conflict, risk, climate, vulnerability, energy, poverty. And so what we found in, in those target countries is um, there are often limited grid infrastructure. Uh, there's limited investment opportunities and investment flows. Um, what does flow is generally large scale and, and state-based. So you may have funding from the World Bank or funding opportunities, but that's usually for larger grid-connected projects. And the solutions in, um, in many countries, for example, in, in Africa or parts of Southeast Asia, where you may not have 100% um, grid extension, the solution is, well, is more likely to be smaller scale distributed projects. And so we're trying to, to bridge a gap in some way to help connect finance solutions and finance flows to projects in, um, in fragile areas with vulnerable populations who are not currently benefiting from or likely to, to see investment in electrification efforts. And the idea behind that is um, that new energy access and new energy development can also help support a range of other indicators that can help support peace. So economic development, uh, better health outcomes, better education, but also 
can serve as a, a tool for cooperation and confidence building and stabilization in a conflict or post-conflict setting and serve as a peace dividend. Uh, currently, the reliance on diesel and fossil fuels uh, in conflict settings often supports local war economies. So supply chains around diesel, uh, diesel for example, um, often overlap with supply chains controlled by conflict actors. And so when you have UN or humanitarian operations in, in places like Syria or South Sudan or Somalia, um, what ends up happening is that often a lot of those purchases end up flowing through local supply chains by necessity. And you have this inadvertent uh, negative impact of international humanitarian operations, for example, uh, funneling money through their diesel purchases to power their operations back into the local war economy. So we see kind of the, the this opportunity for a win-win to transition to renewable energy uh, on the one hand, and at the same time, introduce new renewable energy uh, projects and developments in, in fragile states with the associated potential benefits of that investment, health, security, uh, economic, and ultimately peace benefits. Now, you mentioned Sudan and Somalia. You said there are 27 countries, I believe. Can you mention or list a few other countries just so the audience can get an idea of the kind of countries that are involved? Sure. So they're, they're mostly, uh, the majority are in sub-Saharan Africa. So where we've done work so far as energy peace partners um, on both the research and PREC side, we've done work in South Sudan, on the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, and we are expanding now, um, doing some, looking to do some work next in, in Mali, Somalia, Central African Republic, Uganda, and we're also looking um, at expanding the PREC project work to uh, a couple countries in Asia, Bangladesh, and Myanmar. So the majority of those 27 countries are in Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, there are a few countries in Asia, the Middle East, and then Haiti is uh, the only country in the Americas. Thank you for sharing that. And you mentioned the Peace Renewable Energy Credit, PREC. Can you kind of paint a picture for us of how that works? Sure. So it, it's an extension of a climate finance mechanism that already exists elsewhere in the world. So a renewable energy credit or certificate um, is, is what it's called in North America and much of the world. In Europe, it's called a guarantee of origin. Collectively, they're called energy attribute certificates. Um, these are a sister mechanism to a carbon credit, specifically for the energy sector. So one renewable energy credit or REC represents one megawatt hour of clean energy generated. And so the panels on your roof for every clean energy, for every megawatt hour that's generated, there's a, a certificate that's created. And that certificate represents the claim to that megawatt hour of clean energy. So as you have corporates and governments with, um, with goals, sustainability goals to be 30% or 50% or 100% renewable, one of the ways that they meet that goal is by buying up the claims to renewable energy through buying and selling and trading of these certificates or RECs. Um, so you have a billion plus dollar market in North America and Europe primarily, uh, buying and selling and trading RECs. And it has evolved to be an important uh, economic stimulant that is supporting new renewable energy growth and new renewable energy expansion. And it's really been driven uh, largely actually by corporate demand, corporate sustainability demand, 
What we found is that the architecture for issuing and trading RECs, um, although it's starting to expand internationally, so far it's really been expanding in Asia and Latin America, and there's very, very limited activity in, in Africa and almost none in our target countries. So until late last year, there were only three countries in Africa that have been authorized um, to issue what are called IREX or international RECs. And that's the, the bare necessity in terms of the architecture to engage in this system. You can have a solar project that exists, but unless you're, it's part of the international architecture, you can't create a REC from that solar project. Um, and extending that architecture and issuing a REC allows projects in our target countries an additional way to monetize renewable energy. And that's important because we're working in settings that generally lack the economic incentives and structures that have driven renewable energy investment elsewhere. So you don't have a tax credit scheme. You don't have access to low, uh, low interest debt. Um, you don't have a plethora of investors looking to support renewable energy investments. Um, so having an additional mechanism in this form, in this case, the, the peace renewable energy credit uh, is a way to help make projects economically viable that up until now have, have struggled to achieve that. And so the Peace Renewable Energy Credit is a traditional REC. We've extended this, this architecture so far to Congo and hopefully um, to South Sudan next. Um, we, EPP, serve as the issuer. And the PREC is a traditional IREC, a traditional international REC, uh, with additional criteria that we've developed um, that makes it a Peace Renewable Energy Credit. So it has to be in one of our target countries. It has to be a new renewable energy project. And um, for some of the, the, the projects that have a social impact component, we work on two different tracks, but um, there has to be a, a mechanism for engagement and consultation with the local communities. And we successfully piloted our first PREC project in Eastern Congo uh, earlier this, this year from a, a 1.3 megawatt solar project built by the uh, Congolese company Nuru in the city of Goma. And there we... Uh, facilitated the sale of the first ever PREX, first thousand PREX to um, to a corporate buyer, and that supported a local community impact project, um, which was the in, uh, purchase and installation of uh, of streetlights in a nearby neighborhood. Congratulations on that deal! Is EPP a marketplace, a facilitator? What is the business model? We Well, we operate as a nonprofit, and we our technical role is as the issuer of PREX. So we operate under this international umbrella, international REC standard as the country issuer for DRC and, and next for, uh, for South Sudan, hopefully. And we are hoping to expand beyond that. Um, but at this early stage, we, are, we really are a matchmaker. We are trying to generate awareness and raise demand on the corporate side for PREX among corporate buyers of RECs. We are trying to raise awareness of the idea of renewable energy as a feasible alternative in, in international aid flows, for example, going to these target countries. Traditionally, renewable energy is not part of the, the toolkit for how um, donor governments engage in conflict risk settings. Um, and we are trying to build out the supply as well. So we're trying to identify and work with local or regional renewable energy developers uh, to, to introduce the PREC um, and help 
use the PREC to help build and support their their supply chain of sorry their their pipeline of projects, and also engage with them to to then think about okay how how can we think about this this project in a way that also helps maximize local benefit helps maximize the the peace building benefit uh, both in terms of how the project is conceived and also how additional revenue from the sale of PREX could uh, could help maximize local impact. So the example of the streetlights in Congo is one. Uh, one of the projects in South Sudan that we're working on, the sale of PREX would support uh, the electrification of a local hospital. Um, so that type of, of approach. And then the, the other model uh, is really to, to try to pre-sell PREX to help get projects financed that are not yet financed. How do you certify or how does a project qualify for certification? There's a there's a technical criteria that's been established by the international REC standard. So this this larger international architecture already exists around renewable energy certificates. So our role as the issuer, there's a technical part of this, which just to to confirm that the project is where it, where it says it is and is generating uh, the amount of energy that they they say that they're generating, and we verify that, as well as the social impact part of the peace renewable energy credit. And some of that is through our conversation um, with the developers, our visit to the, our, our um, on-site verification and visit to the project location, uh, and then distance or remote monitoring of the project and follow up from there. So pre-COVID, how often do you or your team members get to be in that part of the world checking the projects? So we, we visited this first project in Congo um, in early March, actually. So just before the, the COVID travel lockdowns hit, we were in Kenya and then Congo in late February and early March. And uh, it was amazing to see that first PREC project um, uh, in, in person. It's really a in, in very impressive project that, that Nuru has built, uh, state-of-the-art equipment. It's providing electrification to a neighborhood that has never before been electrified, the Ndosho neighborhood of Goma, um, which is a neighborhood of about 100,000 people in a larger city of about 2 million. And so they're building out a mini grid connected to their project, providing signing up customers, providing electrification for the first time. Uh, but the neighborhood is, is insecure um, and has difficulty really at night when the sun goes down, uh, insecurity increases, businesses have to close. So the community was the one that said to Nuru, our priority is the installation of nighttime lighting and street lights. So they were able to, to, to identify street lights as the, as the top priority. And um, that's what this, this initial sale of PREX will, uh, will support. It's amazing how a little thing like street lights that we take for granted can have such a great effect. I've heard even in the US here a few years ago, depending on the part of the country you were in, city you were in, just putting up street lights had a dramatic decrease in crime in that area. So it really is interesting. Yeah, that's right. It's had, it's had, uh, I think a noticeable impact in this neighborhood already in, in terms of, uh, reduced insecurity, uh, enabling nighttime markets to stay open longer. Um, so it, it seems something that, that you take for granted when you're sitting, um, in, in the U S for example, but it can have a, a disproportionate impact. Uh, when it's installed for the first time. Have you seen any projects come across your desk for the electrification of schools? Yeah, not yet uh, PREC projects, um, but I know that there are a lot of 
a lot of projects in the generally smaller projects focusing on electrification of schools, um, electrification of local health clinics. So we have not yet had one that's been submitted as a PREC application or a PREC project, but I think it's probably just a matter of time until we do. I look forward to seeing that. Likewise. So, yeah, absolutely. David, I'm going to switch gears here and get to the crux of our conversation, which is the why behind what you do. What motivated you to start EPP? What keeps you going? Uh, so my background is in conflict resolution and, and peace building. And I've worked in East Africa and the Horn of Africa for a long time. And um, I think the underlying assumption that that has kept me going is that there are solutions to even the most intractable problems. And um, sometimes they're political solutions, sometimes they're political their technical solutions, uh, but there are solutions that can be found. And uh, the mechanisms are not always there to sort of properly align the incentives to, to facilitate those solutions, but it's something that uh, is certainly worth the effort to try to keep, um, keep pursuing. And I think with EPP, so I come, my background is really more on the policy side, research and analysis side. I've been involved in some mediation and, and mediation efforts and peace processes in the region. Um, and with EPP, I think we've come at this uh, with the aim of trying to better align some of the te technical solutions with the political goals around peacemaking. And so trying to better link up the climate finance flows, renewable energy flows, of which you know there's hundreds of billions of dollars a year, um, but they're just not directed towards or reaching the countries where it could have the greatest impact and where there's the greatest need. So um, the the process of establishing this IREC, PREC issuance mechanism, for example, creates a bridge between renewable energy markets elsewhere and projects in South Sudan or Congo. Um, and I think it, it makes for very interesting and challenging and, and, uh, and, and satisfying work. And it's something that, um, it's been a bit of a, it hasn't been a linear journey, uh, but the, my own journey has sort of expanded from a tra traditional conflict resolution path to start to look more at the impacts of climate change. And then, um, that led to a focus on climate. So the idea of climate solutions to support peace and a, a focus on renewable energy, um, and partnered with some excellent organizations and excellent people along the way to help, um, help expand my understanding and, and uh, found ways where we could bring our collective expertise together uh, to bridge the, the gaps between different communities and constituencies that were working on different parts of this. So it's obvious you're a fan of or looking for ways to solve problems through peaceful methods. Your company is called Energy Peace Partners. Why? What's the, what's the driving force behind the peace? I think the hope and concept is that new renewable energy investment and new renewable energy development can unlock a host of positive benefits and in conflict affected or conflict risk settings, particularly those that have very limited or low levels of electrification. So we talked about, for example, the risk and the danger of diesel supply chains in conflict settings 
inadvertently sustaining the war economy. So you can mitigate those as well as the environmental impacts. Um, but new electrification allows for not just a cleaner solution, but also uh, a host of other potential benefits. And that includes health benefits and security benefits. We were talking about streetlights and nighttime lighting, um, economic benefits, job creation. But you also have this this opportunity to think of the of, of a new renewable energy project as an entry point for peace building. So from a peace building perspective, you're often looking for any hook or any entry point to, to use as a mechanism for collaboration or cooperation across lines, whether that's between communities or um, between, between conflict actors. And that could be a joint market. It could be a uh, shared management body. Um, and introducing new renewable energy into a place like uh, a city in South Sudan, for example, offers that opportunity. So it fits into this kind of uh, squishy concept of a peace dividend. Um, after a peace deal is signed, the international community will often uh, try to front load investment and front load funding to support this idea of a peace dividend, showing immediate impacts and immediate benefits from the signing of the, of the peace to help solidify support among the population and maybe try to uh, weaken potential spoilers. And so the idea is that renewable energy is, is perfectly suited to that. It can help address uh, multiple challenges facing conflict-affected or conflict-risk settings, um, in addition to taking advantage of this broader global trend that we see around renewable energy investment. And so it's sort of connecting the dots of that global momentum around renewable energy to fragile states and trying to do so in a way that can maximize the peace benefits locally. I'm going to ask my question a different way. With your background in conflict resolution, mediation, you could have gone in many different directions. Why is peace important to you? I think from my experience, conflict is the worst, uh, the worst problem I've ever come across or I've ever seen. It makes everything or almost everything impossible. And so peace is a core requirement for justice and education and human development and growth. And um, I mean, uh, the, the kind of core of the SDGs in some ways, the sustainable development goals or uh, common shared values almost require, require a peaceful environment in, in which, uh, in which to, to be feasible. And so um, it's always just been a motivating, a motivating factor for me or a motivating uh, goal. And it's, you know, it's, it's a challenging issue to work on. It's certainly uh, not one that probably will ever go away. There's been conflict as long as there, there's been humans. Uh, but we need, I think, to continue to work towards um, peaceful societies, peaceful structures, and aligning the incentives more generally around supporting and sustaining peace, um, both locally and, and in the world at large. And I think if you look at the world today, there's sort of an, a, a weakening and a strain on multilateral institutions and um, uh, that focus that that we've had off and on on um, international cooperation and, and peace building. And I think that's uh, that's something that that I hope changes. Um, but we also need to align the economic incentives in the right way behind outcomes that will support peace and stability. 
appreciate you sharing that. So what would you say are some of the most valuable lessons you've learned about yourself on your journey? I think it's it's hard to do something that's cross-disciplinary. It's not how, at least in the, the world I'm coming from, um, organizations, work is is sort of clustered by theme. So you have organizations working on, on human rights or health issues or education um, who all cluster together. And there's a, a big gap between those working, for example, on conflict resolution or peace building and, and then climate change on the other side. So it's not something that happens naturally, I think, but it's, it's very important. And uh, what I've, I've learned and, and observed is that climate change is obviously a global threat, but the political and financial focus at a global level around combating climate change is really focused on the worst polluting countries rather than the worst affected countries. And so you have this unintended consequence of some of the most fragile countries in the world also being most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change, not just in Africa, but including in Africa. Um, and yet very little attention, focus, economic investment or financing to behind that to help mitigate or adapt to some of those impacts. Instead, that climate change investment and climate change focus is on, is on the main polluters. Um, and so that's been an interesting insight. And then uh, my own kind of journey has been a shift from one that was really more policy focused to one that's a little bit more hands-on and, and practical with, uh, with EPP. And I think that's been welcome because you can see the, you can see the project that is, is being built. You can see the, the streetlights that the P-Rex are supporting, for example, um, rather than just a political focus uh, where, you know, an agreement gets signed and does, and does, or does or doesn't get implemented or more likely it's somewhere in the middle and, and people argue about it. Uh, so staying on the subject of journey, it's 2025. What does the future hold for EPP? How do you envision it? So we are, we are I think, on a growth trajectory. So we are hoping to expand the PREC market and marketplace. So that means expanding the countries in which PREcs are available, uh, from Congo to South Sudan to, to the other countries, not just in, in East and Central Africa, but in, uh, in our target geographies. Um, building out a larger corporate demand, awareness of and corporate demand for PREx as a way to for corporations and governments to meet their renewable energy and sustainability goals while also achieving some of their impact and uh, CSR goals. Um, and then also hoping to, to use this to really support local renewable energy sectors. So working with local renewable energy developers in our target countries, supporting capacity building and training uh, so that the renewable energy development and renewable energy growth has the, the maximum impact possible. Um, and I think working more generally at kind of a macro level to integrate, to, to raise awareness and integrate the idea of renewable energy as a tool for peace, as a tool in the toolkit for how the international community engages in fragile states. And it, it's not there yet, uh, but it, there's every reason that it should be. I think it's a beautiful vision, renewable energy as a tool for peace. So my last question, I'm going to have a two-pronged last question for you specifically. One is for personally, we mentioned, you know, we were speaking offline, talked about children. 
your background in conflict resolution, you have children also. What are some of the skills or recommendations you would say for raising children, conflict resolution? And the second piece is advice or words of wisdom specifically for the audience, and it could be professional or personal. Sure. Um, the first question is a great one because I've <laughs> asked myself that many times. I used to think that I knew a lot about negotiations and mediation, and I have found since having kids that I, um, I am out-negotiated constantly, and they just kind of go to the nuclear option every time, and or not every time, but um, more it's frequently mad. than I would like. Mut- yeah. Mut- mutually assured destruction. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but I, I do think that that being able they they have I have learned a great deal from my kids and I hope that I have imparted on them some um some something useful and and they're still you know relatively young but um from from my work and and my perspective and and that of my wife um and so I think on the second the maybe two pieces of advice one one is that the need to be creative and to keep pushing that I think they're there aren't always going to the, the solutions that maybe are necessary or that you're searching for aren't necessarily going to exist. So it's important to keep pushing and trying to find ways forward with that. And related to that is the need for partnership, partnerships and, and good colleagues along the way. Um, I think the, the strength of BPP is that it is cross-disciplinary and it was designed to be cross-disciplinary from the outset and, um, we recognized that there was a big gap between, for example, the, the conflict world that I was coming from and the community working on, on uh, climate change and renewable energy. And so I, I, when this started, it started as a program at, at UC Berkeley. I partnered with a uh, climate scientist and renewable energy expert there, uh, Dan Kamen. And part of the idea was to bridge this gap, that there was this gap and, and how could we help bring the world working on conflict resolution closer to the world working with on uh, climate change and renewable energy. And from there, um, we've identified and been working with a great set of, of colleagues, but it's been a series of, of partnerships thinking outside of the, um, the usual circles, let's say, um, that, that we operated in prior to that. Well, David, I appreciate your time today. It's been a great conversation. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we go? Uh, I don't think so, but I, I appreciate your, um, your, your interest and this, this great conversation. And thank you so much for having me on, Rush. Thank you so much. And again, renewable energy as a tool for peace. It's beautiful. Thank you, David. And I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Likewise. Thanks so much. Before we go, I'm excited to share that we've launched our comic strip, The Adventures of Mira and Nexi. You can find the first issue at our website, nexuspmg.com under the original content tab. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.